Well, we have quite the text before us today. Um, one of the most debated chapters in all of the Bible, filled with illusions of the end times and signs and things to expect about what is coming. It's filled with apocalyptic language. It is wild, friends. And we have 35 minutes to try and get after it. And I will do my best. But here's the thing I want you to get as we go into the text, what we're, what we're going to spend our time doing. We're going to spend our time paying attention to what has happened. What did Christ say would happen and what has already happened? Then we're going to look at what God says will happen still. And lastly, how are we then going to ready ourselves for the day when the Son of Man comes again? What disciplines of faithfulness are we going to spend our time and our efforts honing to ready ourselves for what is coming? So hopefully, simply, you can kind of understand and track with me as we move through this uh, large selection of verses this morning. But let's first ask God's help in this endeavor. Heavenly Father, God, we just, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we, um, we don't preach based on hot-button topics. Lord, we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, and here is where we are today. So God, I just pray that you would help us to understand. Help us to understand what this means for us, how we are to live our lives, how we are to relate to you. Lord, and if we don't know you and we're in this room, Lord, I pray that we would... Uh, develop a better vision of who you are as we get to know Jesus. Lord, make us what we are not. Would you kindly shape us into the image of your son? May my words glorify you this morning. We pray and agree. Amen. So at the end of Luke chapter 19, which I'd encourage you as you go home to read verses or chapter 19 through 21, kind of gives us a full context here. But at the end of Luke chapter 19, just days before uh, Jesus dies, he begins this series of teachings in the temple at Jerusalem. And as he begins this series of teachings, he does it all the way until a certain point. And that point is Passover, or the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And as he's teaching in the temple, what we see in the text is that Jesus is like making his way throughout the large temple grounds into every aspect. And I assume he's trying to teach every group of people who could be out in the temple grounds. The Gentiles, the Jews alike, the women, the men. He's making his way to everybody. He's cleansing the temple in some aspects and also correcting false teaching as he moves through the place. And as Luke 21 begins, Jesus is now teaching in the court of the women or what is known as the court of beauty. It's where he witnesses, if you'll remember from last week, the widow's gift and he commends her. For giving what is proportionate with giving her life to God. And then he also condemns, right, the religious leaders. For giving with a heart of false piety for show. To pre present a particular image of yourselves. So 
Here's a depiction of what these temple grounds look like. Now, it is no longer there as Jesus prophesied. but This is what we imagine what it looked like. And if you see that large white building right outside that wall, that's the court of beauty. That is the court of the women. And this is where Jesus was teaching. And what you would see just above the what's known as the beautiful gate is this white, beautiful structure rising high above the wall and the gate made with silver and gold adornment. It is beautiful and striking to the point where ancient scholars would say that you could see this temple sitting on top of Mount Moriah over 30 miles away, shining in the distance. It's beautiful. It's a wonder of the Roman Empire. And it's at this place where we see Verse 5, begin this morning. It was quite a scene to behold. Look at Luke 21, verse 5. Here's what it says. As some were talking about the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, or in a parallel passage we see in Mark 13, verse 1, which gives us a more specific account of this. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples turned and said, Rabbi, teacher, look. Look at the wonderful building. Look at the wonderful stones. They were captivated by this temple structure. Because the temple meant a lot to the people of Jerusalem. It meant a lot to Jews. It was their symbol of hope. It was what everyone talked about when they were in the holy city. That Jews far and wide would travel to this place from all over the earth. Because it represented God's favor and his presence in their lives. The problem that they were faced with, though, is they were putting their hope in a temple structure while the Messiah, Christ, was walking amongst them. They were missing it because they were captivated by shiny objects like a goldfish. All right, I'm done. Their hope was in the wrong place. And it's at this point in Luke 21, really where Jesus leaves the temple for good. The cross is what awaits him now. In the remainder of Luke 21, which scholars call the Olivet Discourse, forms this fitting bridge to Jesus' final days. And it almost serves as the son of man's farewell prophecy to the people of Israel, and ultimately to us today, because Jesus will give us a glimpse into what the end of days will look like. He'll give us signs and a sequence of events before us. So it's important that we understand what we're reading today is what's called prophetic literature. Everybody say prophetic. All right, it's key. So For us to interpret prophetic literature rightly, we need to understand a couple of principles so we can come into this helpfully, right? With the the aim to get the right interpretation, interpretation. So, first thing we need to know about prophetic literature is there are always two points of fulfillment. A short term fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. We see that pattern throughout the Old Testament, and it's true of this text in Luke 21 as well. And this is what it means when we hear the term in churches, the already, not yet. 
that already we are experiencing the fulfillment of many of these prophecies, but not yet experiencing it in its totality. We hear this a lot about the kingdom of God. It's near, we already experience that, but it's not totally realized yet. It's not ultimately, not yet fulfilled. So what does this mean? Because of the already, not yet principle, what we cannot do is construct a chronology of events that encompasses the entirety of the prophecy. So what you see, right, is people making maps and charts of end times things, and they're looking for suns and moons and blood and this and that in the world. You cannot do that because you're missing the point of the prophecy. You're missing the point of the text. And what we're really missing is what we are to do in the meantime. By committing our minds to the wrong things. So this morning, like I said, we're going to look deeply at two things. First, what has and what will be fulfilled. Because there are several things that Jesus prophesies that have already come to pass. But there are also aspects of his prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled. That certainly will be. And the second thing we're going to look at is... Uh, we're going to labor in understanding the disciplines of faithfulness that Jesus calls us to hone until the day comes when those not yet passages are ultimately realized. So let's establish first what has been fulfilled in this text and then what will be fulfilled. I'm just going to move right through here. So I've listed 10 things that we find between verses 25 and 33 that have been fulfilled or somewhat fulfilled. All right, so the first thing we see is the destruction of the temple. In verse 6, Jesus says, this will happen, it happened in AD 70. False messiahs will try to deceive you. We see that in verse 8. Wars and rebellion will take place. Kingdoms will war against each other, verse 10. Violent natural disasters, verse 11. Persecution against Christians will be commonplace. We see that in verse 12. There will be opportunities to witness before government officials, 12 through 13. You will be betrayed by your family and those closest to you, verse 16. You will endure until the Lord resurrects your body. We see that in verse 18 through 19. And then we see this, that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that the Gentiles would rule it. Verses 20 through 24, that has happened as well in AD 70. These are 10 things that Jesus gives as signs to answer their question in verse 7. Look at verse 7. As they were walking, they're admiring the temple, right? Look at all the beautifulness. And Jesus hits them with that, you know, right cross and says, that thing's going down, right? Like, utterly destroyed, and then they ask, naturally, teacher, when will these things happen? Makes sense, right? That's a fair question. And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So these ten things are what Jesus says. Here is your signs. But more importantly, Jesus gives a certain insight in his answering concerning those ten signs. And this insight is foundational for them when many of these events take place. And it's equally foundational for us concerning what will one day come to pass. So the insight he gives us is found in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, watch out. Everybody say, watch out. Watch out. 
Watch out that you are not deceived. Keep an eye on it. Watch out. Yesterday, uh, went to breakfast with the Johnsons. Normal day. They made some German breakfast. It was awesome. Went home. Was working on my sermon. And uh, get a knock on the door. And it's a police officer kitted up with a rifle in hand. What I do, right? Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, come on in, I guess. Turns out the house behind me, there's an active shooter situation, and they need to get oversight on um, the back of his house, and he had barricaded himself in. Uh, I was like, sure. And then one officer comes, and then two officer comes, and then three officer comes, and then we get a SWAT sniper who comes, and they're all in my kid's playroom, all right? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is an interesting day, right? Like, utter chaos and mayhem. What is going on? That my neighbor who has never had any issues would come to a point like this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I think it's easy when we experience things like this, these ten things, to think the end has arrived. When we personally experience those things, we think the same thing. And for the Jews, man, they believed that when the Messiah came, the consummation of the kingdom would occur. Meaning that at that point, that point, there would now no, no longer be pain or suffering or sin or death. That the king, the Messiah would rule this new kingdom and this new earth. But in fact, what we learn from this chapter in this discourse is that there is a delay between the kingdom of God being near and the kingdom of God being totally realized. Already, not yet. Therefore, we must not be deceived. We must watch out in thinking the end is today when we bear witness to things like, you know, five, six police officers storming into your house, right? Um, Everything was resolved, by the way. It was all good. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I just realized, I was like, I left them really hanging. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. So historically, I want to take a moment and go down memory lane about these ten things. And let us take a look, based upon history, at what has happened leading up to A.D. 70 and then after. Because many of the disciples on the ground hearing Jesus teach would witness these things. So what has been witnessed in history? In A.D. 70, Emperor Titus of Rome had his legions circle Jerusalem and lay siege to it. And what's particularly interesting about the way Romans laid siege to a city is they would get their legions, totally surround a city, and then build walls around the city walls. And they would literally suffocate the people in the city into submission so that no help or aid could come in and no one else could escape. So when you look at verses 20 through 24 in Luke 21, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and there will be great distress in the land for women and their children and that those in the city would be killed by the sword. That's what Jesus is talking about. The ancient historian Josephus recorded that 
somewhere around up to a million and maybe more, maybe less, people were killed by the sword in Jerusalem when the Romans laid siege to it. That happened. Also, what happened during that time was the temple was destroyed. In verse 6, when Jesus says, Not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Historical accounts have said that during the siege, what happened was the temple actually got set on fire. And as the fire raged in the temple, the gold adornment began to melt and drip down the sides of the stone. So when the Romans had successfully conquered the city... They went up Mount Moriah, and they took each stone down out of that temple and scraped the gold off of the stone. So much, though, that Josephus said, actually, that you could not tell there was ever a temple on top of Mount Moriah. That's how thorough they were about getting the gold. That has happened in history. Leading up to A.D. 70... There are even historical accounts that tell us of at least three key figures who claim to be the Messiah and uh, had gathered up for themselves mass followings. It turned out they were lying. Jesus warned them of that. Throughout the Roman Empire during this time, there were many earthquakes. There was at least three that I can think of that destroyed major Roman cities. Cities like Laodicea, Ephesus, Colossae, Philadelphia, and more. To the point, so destroyed to the point where the Empire of Rome had to give out stimulus packages to these cities so they could rebuild. Some of the cities rejected them and said, we'll do it ourselves. But most of them received this kind of gift from the empire. We also know that Christians in the Roman Empire were viciously persecuted for their faith. To the point where many of them were hung on poles and lit on fire to light up the streets of Rome. We know that they were betrayed often by their loved ones. We know that the apostles were dragged before kings and government officials whom they would tell about Jesus and bear witness to. Of wars, we know in the last 3,422 years of recorded history, only 268 of those have seen no war. Isn't that amazing? And we also know that all of the apostles, with the exception of one, were killed, were martyred for their faith, but that they were preserved by Christ and resurrected into glory These things that Jesus said will happen, have happened to a degree. And many will continue to occur in our generation and in future generations. Which means that you and I will experience some of these signs. If you haven't already. Taste the effects of war or persecution or anything else. We will experience that. Both believer and unbeliever will experience that. Friend and enemy will experience these things equally. So, these are the signs of the end, Jesus says. When you think about the end of times, I wonder, does your heart break for those who are going to be caught up in it? I think about Jesus when he came in at his triumphal entry. In Luke 19, 
It says he saw the city of Jerusalem, knowing all of this, and he wept for the people. He wept for them. Like, do we as Christians, when we see the brokenness of people, weep for them, mourn for them, bold in our faith as we encourage them forward? Church, I want to encourage you in this way. You have an everlasting hope made secure in you by Christ himself. So be bold with your hope as you sit kneecap to kneecap with others who are grieving and who are broken by the sin of this world. Be like Jesus. Mourn, weep, and minister to the needy. Look for opportunities to step up. Because when people are suffering... Man, I think when they come to the end of themselves, they, they do this thing, and we all do this thing. This is human nature, I believe, where we shoot up this, like, red cluster flare, right? And it hits in the sky, and that is like, I don't know what else to do. I just know I need something to do with God. Bang! Goes off. And we have an opportunity whether or not we see what went up. Will we run to it, or will we run away from it? Jesus, on the outside of Jerusalem, knowing these things would happen, knowing he would be hung on a cross, went into the city. That's our example. That's what we are called to do. Be like Jesus in this way. But you also need to know, although many of these things have been fulfilled, there are still things the text says that will come. The word will is pretty striking in this chapter It is used in Luke 21 30 times it's repeated. It's the most repeated word in the whole chapter. What that means is the word will, Webster's Dictionary defines it as a choice or determination of one who has authority. It is like a decree or a command. The word will refers naturally to the future, but it's used with stress. And it also carries with it the idea of certainty, right? That will certainly happen. And this is what's being conveyed here in Luke 21. That Jesus is confident and certain about the future of this world. So if you're here this morning and you're trying to get to know Jesus, which I hope we all are, then one of the things you need to know is that Jesus thinks the the end of the world is coming. It's what he thinks. It's what he knows. It's what he says will happen. According to Jesus, you can be sure that the world as we know it has an appointed day for its end. So here, what will still happen? We see in verses 25 through 33. The Lord gives signs that affect the universe. They are cosmic signs. If you look at the text, it says sun, moon, stars, seas, waves. These are cosmic signs. And Jesus uses the imagery of apocalyptic scenes to signify its devastating end. Saying that, man, it's almost as if like the heavens are shaking himself. So he says at the end, it will be cosmically insane. (laughs) That it will feel like everything is at chaos. So where that the heavens are shaking themselves. And then he says in 
verse 26, I believe. He says that the nations will be bewildered by what they see. Like the nations in the world, the empires of the world will not have an answer to the point where the common people on the, in the world, Jesus says, will have so much fear in them that it's uncontrollable. Now, the text doesn't say uncontrollable, but I think it naturally means this. When Jesus says they will have so much fear, they will faint. That's what's coming. That's the end of what all things and uh, of all things and the lord gives us this sequence of events that will happen but this is key friends jesus does not give a prediction of when the remember in matthew 24:36 jesus said that no man himself knows the day or the hour when these things will come to pass jesus doesn't focus on time he focuses on sequence culminating in the greatest sign of the end in verse 28, when Jesus says that he himself, the Son of Man, will descend on a cloud with great power and great glory. And all things we know will be made new on that day. Amen? That's where we're headed. That's what Jesus will do. That is our future hope. He will come just as he descended in Acts chapter 1 on a great cloud with power and glory to the right hand of the Father. And he will come to that place to make all things new again on this earth. For me, what fills me with hope from this chapter is that the Lord clearly lays out this plan In the midst of the greatest suffering described in the world. He has this plan. That this world has a purpose. And it also has an end. So you may be here this morning. By all accounts. Experiencing right now the greatest suffering and trouble you have ever experienced in your life. I don't know where each of you are at. But this is what you need to leave with. If you leave here with nothing else, Jesus has not forsaken you. God is still sovereign. Things are not out of control. His hands are in the midst of it. He is governing and bringing us to this good, beautiful point. That is the direction we are heading. I know you're probably suffering. And I know it may be difficult to see this plan where you are today. But it does not make it any less true. Because there will come a day when it will end. It is no more. And if your hope is placed in him instead of some temple structure or a broken person or anything else in creation... What you will find if your hope is placed in him is rest for your weary soul. Is peace in a chaos. The promise Jesus gives is this. You will not be lost, but by your endurance and your rightly placed hope, you will gain your life. That's what he promises. And this is the sequence of events that Jesus lays out for us. And I don't think we need to spend any more 
uh, time than this. I think what I've given you is enough to occupy your minds and your imaginations and maybe even stir up your spiritual devotion. But the main point of this text is not apocalyptic language or a some sequence of events. Our Lord in his grace gives us pastoral in the midst of this kind of teaching. He directs us as believers to hone various disciplines of faithfulness which help us to answer questions like, you know, okay, the end of the world's coming, so what? What do I do, right? Why does this even matter? How does this help us or ready us for the coming of the Lord? Well, I think he calls us to seven distinct things to hone regarding our disciplines of faithfulness. We see that throughout the whole chapter, so I'll reference it. But I think the foundation for this is Ephesians 2, chapter 10. My kids were in VBS last week, and this was their memory verse, so now i got this song stuck in my head. You know how kids do? So I'm going to try and not say it with the song. Um, we are his workmanship who have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the Lord has prepared ahead of time for us to do. So this is the foundation. We are God's workmanship. He's given you a work to hone. This work was given to you before the foundation of the world. It was prepared ahead of time for you. This is the foundation. So we must always be honing and realigning our disciplines of faithfulness. It makes me think of like a knife. So when a knife becomes dull, you have two choices of how you will sharpen it. You will either sharpen it by taking away edge or you will hone it. To hone a knife means to push the metal so that it realigns with the edge. That is what we're talking about doing. The work is established. What we have to work at is pushing the metal to make the edge again. And we do that by practicing these things often because listen when chaos and mayhem circles you like uh, active shooter behind your house chaos right if your spiritual knife is dull you will be ineffective you'll be ineffective so this is the work that we are to do in chapter 21 I see clear seven disciplines for this beginning with verses 8 and 9 we see that we are to first hone the discipline of discernment. Here's what it, it says in verse 8 and 9. Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these take place first. But the end will not come right away. Jesus tells us that we must not be fooled or afraid because false teachers. To discern, biblically speaking, means to test against the truth. So in this life, friends, you will hear many messages. Messages from the world, messages in the church, messages abound. But how will you know what is true? That's the question. We need discernment. To discern what is true, you must test against a standard. I will tell you the standard is God's word. It is the foundation for all that is true. You must test against this standard. 
In this passage, Jesus gives a scope and sequence, right, of the things that are to come, things to be sure about. And we are to be undistracted, undeterred, and unswayed by the falsehoods of this world. Because this world and everything in it, the Bible says, is passing away. But the world to come and the Christ who is in it, it will last forever. So be heavenly minded so that you can be earthly good. Many often say, if you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I think that's a lie. As we discern what is true, it makes us heavenly minded. And when we are heavenly minded, we can be good to others in the message that we bring, in the way we care for each other. Have you experienced that in this church? We want to be a people who are heavenly minded. We're, we're, our minds are consumed by the things of God. That is the first discipline. Then we see this next discipline, the discipline of witnessing. Look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare a defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. As Jesus lists all of these great calamities his disciples would experience, I think it's easy for us to get depressed or get in despair or get hopeless. However, Jesus reminds us that these are opportunities to bear witness to the world about Jesus. So how often, friends, do you pray and ask God to give you opportunities to tell others about Christ? I think idealistically what we think will happen is like we'll show up to some party, right? And you'll go to the like grill and the dude's grilling and he turns to you and says, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) And you're like, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that he rose again from the grave, put your faith in him, trust him, follow him. He gets saved, revival breaks out at the party, everyone comes to Jesus, whole communities are changed and transformed, boom! Can that happen? Yes. Is that the norm? No. It's not. It simply doesn't really happen that way. Often what God uses for us to bear witness of his work is suffering. In James it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But how do we get to a place of humility without Christ? Without being opposed. One of God's greatest mercies in our lives is he will not let us be proud. Because when we are proud, we do not get our eyes up on him, do we? We think we're dependent of him. But in fact, friends, we are rather independent of him. But in fact, friends, we are rather dependent on him for all things. So we must discipline ourselves in witnessing because people will shoot up that flare. To hone this discipline means to know the gospel, to know it in your bones, to work and think through your testimony. How did God save you? So that when you see that red star cluster hit the sky and you enter into that space, You are equipped and your edge is sharp and effective. 
I'm going to move us forward here towards Discipline 7 because we are out of time, and I don't want y'all to sing doxology today. Um, (laughs) So look at me with verses 37 through 38. If you didn't take these things down, I want to encourage you to look back at the verses and to start to think like, future hope. How do I rest in the promises of God, right? How do I trust in God's word? For me, I use a blue highlighter, highlight it when I see a promise in the Bible. I meditate on it. I think about it. I sit in that. I hope in that. Um, Paying attention to the signs around you. Don't miss what's going around you. Look for opportunities to enter into that space and to pay attention so that you can make yourself ready when the Lord is coming. Be vigilant in prayer, like in prayer. Two, um, we must be prayerfully watchful over what's going on around us. I think about those officers who were in my house yesterday. There was one at the back door looking out the kitchen window. There were two upstairs, and then there was a sniper who went up and got higher so that he could see the back of this building. Did that guy ever come out the vent in that space? They were watching over it. That's what we need to do. So we need to ask God to give us a vision to see what is going around us. That God would give us eyes to see the darkness in our hearts. The places where we need to continue to grow and be sanctified by Christ. We need to ask him of that. We pray in that he will reveal those things to you. But the last discipline we see is the discipline of listening. In verses 37 through 38, what we see is that Jesus leaves and goes to the Mount of Olives. And then comes back and says in verse 38, the people came back early in the morning to listen to him. We must be a people of the book, friends. We must desire and hone a discipline of returning back to hear from Christ. We don't hear enough. We need to treasure and steep in all that Christ gives us in his word. Let's pursue that. Because in, that, in the pursuit of that, you will give glory to God. Amen? So let us be a people who hone these kinds of things. Let our communities be shaped. Let's run towards the Red Star clusters. Let's be watchful over one another. Let's stand and pray.